Tonight's Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, and that can be found on page 1031 of the Church Bibles. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. So, virtually at each generation of life, each generation and stage over history, Jesus Christ has been defined to suit the interests and concerns of that age. Quite often, who Jesus is will reflect the precise needs or the precise views of that particular generation. So back in the 60s, 70s, Jesus was viewed as the great revolutionary. Che Guevara, he was interpreted like this great Cuban revolutionary, Che Guevara. More recently, Jesus has been interpreted as the greatest therapist whoever lived. So talk to Jesus and he'll make you feel better. Lie on the couch and Jesus will listen. Jesus will hold your hand. He'll make you feel much better. Or Jesus, in some religious takes on him, is the great therapist and the great guru. The one who listens to your issues and or really your, your problems and, well, will it offer you advice that reflects just what the great spiritual guru would think? Jesus, as he's understood, reflects just exactly what is going on in the culture. Jesus is interpreted to suit the culture. Jesus is interpreted to suit the needs. But, Jesus is not who you think he is, nor is Jesus who you want him to be. 
this is quite shocking because we imagine that Jesus will do what we want him to do. We imagine that Jesus will be the one who we want him to be. But that isn't the case. Maybe you've come here this evening with a particular view of Jesus. I'm not quite sure what's influenced or informed your view. Maybe church has. Maybe your background has. Maybe your family, maybe your girlfriend or your boyfriend. I don't know who puts the pressure on you to think about Jesus. But who is Jesus to you? He's not who you think he is. He is not what you want him to be. Now Luke's gospel is a biography of Jesus. Luke's gospel is concerned about presenting the true Jesus. Luke's gospel is concerned about presenting accurately and historically just exactly who this man is. And who is he? Well, from chapter one, we've been finding out that this Jesus, this character, this figure who was born as a baby was promised. If you have a look in your Bible, Luke chapter one, you'll see that outlined. If you just flick back, you'll see his birth outlined. We're just going to do some flicking. Luke chapter one, his birth outlined. We see the build-up. We see the moments before and the interpretation of who Jesus is. He's promised in chapter one. Then in chapter 2, he's identified. He's identified as the one who would be the Savior, as the one who would be the great rescuer. Chapter 2, listen to this, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Jesus is identified. Chapter 3, Jesus is located. And by located, I mean geographically, yes, but also in terms of ancestry. Who is this Jesus? And if you have a look at chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke traces Jesus' ancestry right back to who? Well, Adam, because he's a man, God. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is proven. This Jesus is no ordinary man. He is a man. He's truly man, but he's no ordinary man. Why? Well, have a look, chapter 4, the first few lines of chapter 4. The title is The Temptation of Jesus. We're thinking about this last week. And we're thinking about how on earth did Jesus face temptation? That's a pretty major question. Because all along in the history of Israel, Israel kept failing in this regard. Israel gave up on God. Israel placed their own wants and own desires and own preferences ahead of God's. They desired bread. They didn't want God's. They desired preeminence. They didn't want God. They desired worship. But they created a statue to worship. At each of those points, Jesus is proven. Jesus, the new Son of God, the true Son of God, is proven because He withstands all of that temptation. Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days He was tempted by the devil. 
Jesus, the true Son of God, Jesus, the true Israel of God, withstands whatever's thrown at him by the devil. That is who we're dealing with. This is Jesus, who he is. He is not the failure that Israel was. Jesus is the true Israel, the true Son of God. That's in the build-up to his public ministry. That's in the build-up to him arriving on the scene. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we get these lines. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. That's a positive start, isn't it? This Jesus who had proved himself who'd withstood all the temptation that Satan threw at him, well, he seems to be being accepted by those, well, where is he? Galilee. And in fact, the whole countryside. His fame was increasing. Verse 15, his teaching was being very well received. This is all looking really positive for Jesus. This is a success. His mission, it seems, is, well, it's not set to fail. It's set to succeed, isn't it? Well, let's read on. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 21. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. And he's in church, so to speak, on the Sabbath. The custom for those who were Jews. The Sabbath was the day that you set aside, you didn't work, you set aside time for God. It was God's day. And where would you gather? Well, you would gather in the synagogue. Remember the temples in Jerusalem? The central temple, the central place of meeting is in Jerusalem. But dotted around the ancient Near East were these synagogues where the Jews would gather. And what would they do when they gather? They would listen to the law. And they'd listen to one of the rabbis. All's pretty normal for a Sabbath in a synagogue. The scroll is there, the scroll that the Old Testament was on, the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and Jesus unrolled it. He found the place where it is written. He went to Isaiah chapter 61. We'll not go there because we will hear it as Jesus reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me. Uh, Just pause. Those words may be very familiar. Jesus being the anointed one. You may have heard of this sort of thing before. How significant is it? Well, anointing was what happened to you whenever you were given a role, when you become a king, when you become God's king. God's kings were anointed ones. 
David was anointed. Solomon was anointed. Saul was anointed. God's king was anointed for the specific task of what? Have a look. To preach good news to the poor. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? Well, he came to preach. Jesus was a preacher. What did he preach? Well, good news. To whom? The poor. Ah, what does that mean? At various points of the history of the church, this has been interpreted in many different ways. More recently, it's interpreted in this particular way. Jesus is that great freedom fighter. Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. Jesus is on the side of the socially and financially impoverished. That's who we want. He may actually tackle our middle-class guilt as we look at different parts of this world and we see those who are impoverished, those without money, those without things, those without food. He may actually tackle that, but is that the point of Luke chapter 4, verse 18? Is this why Jesus draws their attention to this passage? Who are the poor as far as Jesus is concerned? Well, Jesus, as we've already pointed out, is reading from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 16, which is all about the judgment of God. The judgment on who? God's people, the Israelites. And how are they described? Well, at various points in Isaiah, from chapter 40 of Isaiah, right through to the end of Isaiah, those Israelites who've rebelled against God are described as the poor, as those who are spiritually impoverished. They weren't particularly financially impoverished. Yes, of course, there was exile and so on and so forth, but that wasn't particularly what Isaiah had in mind. They were spiritually impoverished. As far as God is concerned, they were rejecting God, their rescuer. They were spiritually impoverished. Now, sometimes whenever these verses are read and used today, the way Jesus is understood is this great social oppressor lifting, fighting against all of the social oppression that there is of our particular day. That's how Jesus is understood, isn't it? In fact, that's the Jesus it might be that we want, who will deal with all our social ills, and of course, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news, relief of financial impoverishment to the poor. Well, is that the good news? For the Israelites, hearing the prophet Isaiah, it was salvation. The good news was a message of rescue, rescue from oppression, Rescue from spiritual impoverishment. Eternal rescue. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, those who are spiritually bound up. 
Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 3, which we thought about two weeks ago, there was a prisoner, John. Jesus didn't go and get him out of jail. He, John, that is, conflicted with Herod, pointed out Herod's immorality, and as a result was thrown into jail. Did Jesus go and open up the doors of the jail and get him out of it? Well, no. Because the imprisonment here in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, is spiritual imprisonment. Those who are described in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, it's exactly the same thing. Spiritual imprisonment. Spiritual recovery of sight for the blind. Spiritually blind. Those who could not see, perceive, grasp the kingdom of God. To release the oppressed. Who are the oppressed? God's people, whose necks are on the line, whose heads are on the block by God's enemies. This is the message Jesus will bring. This is the message, the good news of release, of spiritual sight, of freedom for those spiritually imprisoned, of riches. For those who are spiritually impoverished to proclaim also verse 19 the year of the Lord's favor the year of jubilee the year when God's people could go in freedom to God's place his country to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor why did he come he came to preach the gospel, the good news of release, of forgiveness, of sight. That's why Jesus came, to preach, to speak of salvation to the undeserving, to the spiritually blind, blind to the spiritually bound, to the spiritually impoverished, Jesus comes and says, I will feed you. I will release you. I will forgive you. I will let you see and know the kingdom of God. You will know God's favor. Isn't that great news? This is for you. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I see a rabbi stand up to read and sit down to teach. And that's what we've got here. Jesus was just a rabbi, as far as they were concerned. They didn't realize his true identity. I wonder, do you realize his true identity? Jesus sits down, and he says, guys, everyone who's listening to me, what we've just read, what you've just heard, is now fulfilled. I wonder how you would have responded had you been a Jew in the synagogue 2,000 years ago hearing these words of Jesus. How would you have responded? What would you have thought? Well, let's hear what they thought. Verse 22. 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? See, sometimes we read this and we think they're being a bit sarcastic or kind of questioning Jesus' identity because he is just a carpenter, an uneducated carpenter, son of Joseph, one of ours. Isn't this Joseph's son? He's got the looks, he's got the last name of Joseph. We know him. We can handle him. And aren't we amazed? Wow, wasn't that really incredible, an incredible exposition, an incredible explanation of those bits of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. I can remember one of the first times I preached. My mom and dad were there. I can remember that. I can remember everyone fawning over me and fawning over them. And isn't that wonderful? Not Freddie's son. Oh, it's great. He'll make a great preacher someday. It hasn't happened yet. But you know those moments. Those moments, sometimes I experience those moments with those we've been investing in in ministry and trying to send on, and we kind of feel filled with pride, and maybe the church here at All Saints feels filled with pride whenever one of them takes their first step into preaching. We go, oh, isn't this Joseph's son? All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? But the real reason that Jesus has come is actually not to fulfill their wishes or their expectations of him. He didn't come for that. Actually, if he had come for that, if he had come to give them that freedom from political oppression, which was happening at the time, the Romans had their boot on the Jews. The Romans had oppressed the Jews quite significantly. And if you hear of a freedom fighter who will come and bring freedom to you, well, you'd want to queue up behind him and follow him, wouldn't you? But is that the kind of freedom that Jesus come to bring? Political freedom? Riches out of poverty? The physical? Food for the hungry? Is that what Jesus has come to do? Well, verse 23, Jesus hints at that this is not what he has come to do. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. You know that Jesus healed in Capernaum. You know that Jesus also later on is going to heal, excuse me, in Capernaum. Why does Jesus say this? This is a provocative thing to say to those who are listening. And we know it's provocative because of what follows. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Ah, oh, but Jesus, Joseph's son, he's one of us. Is it the, the wee lad? Do you remember, we remember him playing when he was a kid? We remember his first day at school, in his school uniform and carrying a satchel, and he got the bus, and he got the bus from outside my front door. I remember the wee lad. Please never be sentimental about Jesus because Jesus will shock you. And Jesus shocks them by what he says. There is absolutely no room whatsoever for sentimentality as far as Jesus is concerned. 
No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I just wonder how those who were there in front of him were listening in this continued exposition from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. I assure you, verse 25, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Okay. Jesus, that's... Hang on, we've just gone from Isaiah chapter 61 and... You said, physician, heal yourself. What, 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 why are you going into this stuff? See, these were two significant events in the life and the history of God's Old Testament people. God's Old Testament people were the privileged people of God, the Jews. The Gentiles were excluded from God's people. Yet, God's Old Testament people had forgotten that God's purpose was always to get the gospel and to get God's rescue beyond the Jews to the ends of the earth, to the nations of the world. If you want to go back to 1 Kings, which is in the Old Testament, if you've got it there in front of you, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, you'll see what I mean. In fact, you'll see what Jesus means. 1 Kings Chapter 16, verse 31. Page 358. Verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Elijah was a prophet. Elijah's work of prophecy was declaring the good news of God and challenging the people of God in their hardness of heart against God. God's people continued in open defiance of God, in open rebellion to God. And what does God do? Well, God, as we're told here, the prophet Elijah was sent to a Gentile, a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, that provoked indignation amongst God's people. That provoked a bit of anger amongst God's people. That provoked God's people who thought God was on their side, the Israelites not on the Gentile side. How could they know the grace of God? Those dirty, rotten Gentiles. They don't deserve any grace or any kindness from God at all. But Jesus tells us what happened. Elijah was sent not to any of them, God's people, but to this widow who geographically and ancestrally was Gentile. Widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. Elijah, then Elijah's successor, Elisha, 
2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14, which is the next book along. This is a great story. You may know this story in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I have read once or twice to my children. Naaman had leprosy, and he was told to bathe in a slimy river to be healed. But actually, the word isn't healed. The word is cleansed. Leprosy was symbolic of exclusion from the kingdom of God. It made you unclean. Let's read this. 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel, the dirty, slimy river? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then, whom he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy, clean of leprosy, hailed from leprosy, but the word clean means now, acceptable. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. Naaman, the Gentile, acknowledges the true and the living God, the God of the Israelites. Now, why is Jesus saying all of this? He's preempting them when he says to them, you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, do to yourself and to those who are present around you what you say you will do. Do to yourself instead of to others what you will say. In fact, do to us. You see, this is the tricky thing about Jesus. He isn't who we think he is. He doesn't do what we think he should do. If we try to interpret him and squeeze him into our box, our perception, we'll get it wrong, fundamentally wrong. And that's what was happening. Jesus. You see, a bit later on, back to Luke, Luke chapter 7, we get similar stories. We get similar stories of Elijah. We get similar stories of Elisha. Luke chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him and asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but you say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. There was a healing. There was a rescue. And then there's a resurrection. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and the disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I said to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared amongst us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Who is Jesus? Who is the true Jesus? Is he what you expect him to be? Is he what you want him to be? Actually, he is what you need him to be. The description of Jesus at his birth, that Savior, is exactly what we need. He is exactly the one we need. We may want him to be and to do things for us, but why has he come? See, our fundamental problem, our biggest problem, is our sin. Our biggest issue is blindness, spiritual blindness. Our biggest problem is spiritual poverty. We may look around the world and see those who are poor, see the marginalized, see the oppressed, but actually, that's not the worst of their problems. Not having money is not the worst of their problems. Being oppressed in our culture is not the worst. What is the worst? Our biggest issue, our biggest problem is the sin that separates us from God. The sin that will keep us out of heaven. The sin which, well, as the Bible says, will result in God's wrath being on us forever. That is your biggest problem. You may think it's lack of education. You may think it's lack of money. You may think it's lack of place in society or qualifications. Your biggest issue is your sin. Your biggest problem is between you and God, that problem. Why has Jesus come? He's come to preach that good news which relieves that spiritual poverty. 
He's come to preach the good news that there is rescue, that there is relief, that there is sight for those who are spiritually blind. He's come to preach that message. And then he's come to make that message real. And how does he do that? Well, he does that by his death on the cross instead of and for you. As he hangs there on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he willingly receives the punishment for our, not his, our rebellion. All the people, verse 28, in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. What? Literally a second ago, Luke, you wrote that they loved him. They were sentimental about him. They remember the wee lad who used to kick a ball up and down the street in front of their houses in Nazareth. Joseph's son. Verse 28, they were furious. There is anger expressed today at the message of Jesus, isn't there? You've seen it. You know it. You may have felt it as you've tried to share it. The fury, verse 28, is quite big. Because verse 29, look at what happens. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down a cliff. Is this the reaction to Jesus? This is the real deep down inside reaction to Jesus. There's no sense in which Jesus is welcomed with open arms. There may have been sentimental attachment to him and a bit of reminiscence about his childhood and their childhood, therefore. But no. He said to them, you're like these people. You're like these people who did not experience God's grace, God's rescue. You're like these people who will miss God's salvation. In fact, God's salvation goes beyond you to, well, who was it? The widow, Azarephath, Naaman, the leper, both Gentiles. They get the good news. They get the benefits of what Jesus has come to bring salvation. That would be a nightmare, wouldn't it, to miss out on God's salvation. That God rescues others and not you. Imagine that. You're sitting there listening to this extended exposition of Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2, and then you're in the frame, Jesus. Says you well, you're going to miss out. They tried to kill him as a result. They were so furious. They knew their Old Testament history. They knew what had happened at Zarephath in the region of Zidon. They knew what happened to Naaman. The Gentiles, both Gentiles, they knew all that. And Jesus says, well, actually, those Gentiles are going to be a better place than you are on the day of judgment. No wonder they were furious. But verse 30, and this is the theme, isn't it? As we go through Luke's gospel, this is the theme. Jesus 
walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Was he good at hide and seek? Was he a good sidestepper? Was he deft on his feet? No, no. He's the king. He is God. There's no way they're going to grab him and hold on to him and kill him before his time. Absolutely no way whatsoever because there's so much to go until we get to Luke chapter 23 when Jesus willingly goes to the cross and is strung up in it and cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So who is Jesus? Why has he come? What will he do? Jesus, this man is the rescuer. Jesus, this man is the savior. Jesus, this man is the one who will give you spiritual riches, who will give you spiritual salvation. I wonder, do you have that this evening? I wonder, have you acknowledged who Jesus Christ is and what you are? You see, it's very simple. We just say, yes, Lord Jesus, I've been living life my own way with me as the king. I am sorry I've not acknowledged you as the rightful king of my life. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying instead of me and for me. Thank you for coming through death and being raised as the king forever. That's how we grasp exactly who the real Jesus is by acknowledging our desperate need of him. So don't get it wrong. If you do, it will be eternally fatal. Jesus is this one who will proclaim this good news of rescue for you. This good news to we who are spiritually blind and impoverished and locked up in our own sin. And the faithful Son of God, the rescuer, will save us forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please forgive us for not believing the Jesus of the Bible, instead worshiping and praising and living for the Jesus of our imaginations. We pray that we would trust and know the Jesus, the real Jesus, the true Jesus, the Jesus who is the rescue, who's come to seek and to save the lost. This preacher of good news to those who are impoverished, blind, locked up. We praise you for him. May we know him more. In Jesus' name, amen.